As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, by the Spirit, through the word preached, we pray that you would open our eyes so that we may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to you. We may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me to the book of the Revelation, chapter 12. Revelation 12. We're going to be reading verses 7 through 17 together. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. If you're using some of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1319. Revelation 12. And we're going to begin our reading at verse 7 and read through um, verse 17. We're going to omit the last sentence of verse 17 just because it continues on to the next section. So Revelation chapter 12, beginning our reading at verse 7, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. We're, conti- we're continuing to consider our uh, series through the Lord's Prayer, and we've come to the last petition or the last request that we make in the Lord's Prayer, um, and it follows from the petition or the request that we considered last time. Uh, forgive us our debts, is acknowledging the debts we have already incurred from God by trespassing against his law. Uh, We talked about debts and trespasses being uh, the same thing as our Lord talks about them in Matthew 6, and that trespass we can think of just the way we think of trespassing in this world. We see signs that say no trespassing, and we recognize trespassing happens when you go places you're not supposed to go. Uh, we're told in the scriptures that, the, that we are to walk a path and we're not to turn from the right or to the left, turn to the right or to the left as we go down that path. And to do so would be to trespass against what God has told us to do. When we do that, we incur debts we need to be forgiven of. And we thought about that 
in our last petition. So we could almost say if the last petition was forgive us the debts that we've incurred, um, this petition could be keep us from incurring more debts. Um, Help us from getting into that situation in the first place. And to that end, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, It's our desire as Christians not to incur further debts. And that's part of the, the living of the Christian life, isn't it? Of trying to confess our sins when we sin against the Lord, but not simply be a people who are always confessing sins, but also be a people who are fighting against sin. Um, In this regard, I think what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2 is so helpful. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And I think in the Christian life, we're always mindful of those two needs. Uh, One, to try not to sin. Um, that's, that's what we should be about in the Christian life, trying to please God with what we do, walk according to the way he set for us, and to try to avoid sin, knowing that when we fail and when we fall short, we do have an advocate with the Father. Um, this passage always comes to mind for me because I remember distinctly a very powerful sermon that one of my seminary professors preached on that passage, talking about Sin And one of the lines from that sermon continues to stick with me. He said, sin must not only be confessed, it must be contested. Uh, that that's what's required in the Christian life. Not just, just to confess sin when we commit it, but to contest it, to fight against it in our lives, to try not to walk in sin. Um, and we know that that's possible because the Lord has set us free from the slavery of sin. The Lord Jesus has overcome. And so we, in his power, the next sin is not inevitable for us. Uh, we can never say, I have no choice but to sin. Um, the next sin is not inevitable. We, otherwise, well, how could John say to us, little children, I'm writing this to you so that you would not sin. If we were absolutely powerless against sin, he couldn't write that to us. Um, The problem, of course, is that we stumble and fall in many ways. We're no longer slaves to sin, and we know that the next sin is not inevitable. Uh, We can resist in the power of the Spirit, but too often we fail to do that. Um, And that's one of the things that we have to understand about the Christian life and continue to try to do both, to be a people who contest sin in our lives by trying to walk in the way that God has called us to walk. And when we stumble and when we fall, to make sure that we are confessing our sins. And what this particular petition the Lord's Prayer is recognizing is, if we are to fight against sin successfully, we cannot do that in our own power. We cannot do that in our own strength. We need the help and the strength of the Holy Spirit. Um, And one of the reasons that we need help is because we recognize, as the Catechism helpfully lays it out for us, our enemies are strong, when we are weak, um, we don't have the requisite power in ourselves to fight against the enemies we face. And if we are to fight, and if we are to fight successfully, we have to fight in a power not our own, uh, but in a power given us by our God. 
Um, And so I want to think about this petition together this evening and sort of think about those realities, um, those realities that are laid out in the Catechism and that Revelation 12 helpfully shows us. Um, Why do we need to pray for God's help not to enter into temptation and to be delivered from evil? Well, it's because of the strong power of our enemies, because of the lacking power in ourselves, and because of the almighty power of our God. And that's how we have to think about these things as we struggle against sin. We have to reckon with the strong power of our enemies. And the catechism helpfully lays out for us who our enemies are. Our sworn enemies are the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. These are the enemies with which we have to contend if we are to live life for God. And of course, they're listed, I think, in terms of the ones that are the first and the foremost in terms of difficulty. And the first, of course, and the foremost enemy of God's people is the devil. Uh, The Reformed theologian Herman Vitzius, as he was thinking about this petition of the Lord's Prayer, began his discussion of this prayer request by saying, whoever has God for his friend will find Satan to be his enemy. Whoever has God for his friend will find Satan to be his enemy. Um, The name Satan in itself means adversary, right? Satan is the adversary of God, and he has been the adversary of all who belong to God. And we see that adversarial nature of the devil playing itself out in this chapter, right? He makes war against God, and failing to make war against God, he makes war against his church. Um, He is an adversary against God. If it were possible, he would overturn God's throne and bring everything that God has made to ruin. That's what he set out to do. Um, that's the picture of the warfare in heaven that we're given in Revelation 12:7. He would love nothing more than to throw God off of his throne and destroy everything good that God has made. But what this passage wonderfully reminds us is he never has been able to do it, and he cannot now do it because he's been defeated. Um, he's been decisively defeated by the conquest of our Lord Jesus Christ. By our Lord's cross and by our Lord's resurrection, he has once for all ensured the devil's failure and destruction. Uh, This is a picture of warfare, isn't it, in chapter 12 of the book of the Revelation that only ends one way. He's defeated in heaven, he's thrown down to earth, and that's the sign of his defeat at the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ who has overcome. All those who are in Christ and who have joined the church triumphant in heaven have overcome in him. They are beyond the reach of that adversary. Uh, But those who are still on earth, those who are still the offspring of the woman, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, are still subject to the devil's warfare. Uh, That's why it's been popular Uh, for us to speak of the church as the church in heaven is the church triumphant. They've overcome. Uh, They've gone beyond the reach of the adversaries of God. Uh, They have overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Um, But we here on earth are still called the church militant uh, because we are still at war, and the first and foremost of our enemies is the devil. Um, Because the devil cannot do anything about heaven anymore, because the devil has been thrown down in that decisive way that promises his defeat, um, all the devil can do is hurl all of his venom against the church on earth while he still has the time. 
Um, and he, he does that in sort of this consciousness of the fact that his time is short. Um, and of course, being as wicked and evil as he is, he's spending that time in nothing but rebellion and destruction and terror. Um, he's a dangerous adversary. That's why even though the saints in heaven are singing the praise of their deliverance, uh, they, they know that the task for the church on the earth is still difficult. Right? Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And it holds up those two realities that we have to contend with. The devil is defeated. The cross of Christ has defeated him. I shared this with you before, but I remember being with a student at seminary, and we're having one of these seminary discussions that you have, sort of weird things theologically. And I remember we were talking about, you know, the devil fighting against the church. Does he think he can win? And we're kind of having this conversation. And as we're having it, one of our professors walks by, and my friend says, I'm going to ask him. I said, don't ask him. This is a stupid conversation for us to be having. Um, But I'm going to ask him, can the devil win? He didn't even break stride. He said, did he ever think he could win? Yes. Does he think he can win now? No. Because Christ has triumphed. He's been thrown down. Um, And so we had been having this discussion. He walked by and didn't even have to break stride to settle it. Um, The devil can't win. He's been defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been thrown down on account of what Christ has done on the cross. But the Bible tells us that just because he's defeated doesn't mean he's not still dangerous. Um, He's very dangerous. He's filled with great wrath on account of his defeat and doing what he can while he has the time. And we do well to remember who the devil is and who our fight is with, right? We do well to remember his record of misery uh, that he has perpetrated, that he tempted and deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, that he afflicted Job mightily. We're told that he was the one who enticed David to sin against the Lord in 1 Chronicles 21.1. He incited Judas to betray Jesus. He sought to sift Peter like wheat. It's a terrible record of misery, So we need to remember what he does, and we need to remember how he works. He's a deceiver who deceives in many ways. Sometimes, like we read in the book of the Revelation, he likes to deceive as if he has unassailable power, as if he's just as powerful. Uh, There's a lamb who is slain, who is overcome, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and there's a beast that arises that looks like it has a mortal wound. And essentially what the devil is trying to say there is, I'm just like the lamb who was slain. I've come back. I'm powerful. Um, Sometimes he pretends he's powerful like God is. He deceives us that way. Sometimes he pretends he's good and noble. He masquerades as an angel of light, Scripture tells us. Um, But he is always a deceiver. He's always a deceiver. He's cunning and crafty. And at the bottom, our Lord reminds us he is a killer. The fundamental characteristic that Jesus highlights about the devil in John 8, 44 is that he has been a murderer from the beginning. Um, And Peter, knowing uh, how dangerous the devil is, says he's like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. He's always looking around. And so as we think about the power of our enemies, if that was our only enemy, that would be bad enough. Um, But we also face the world as an enemy, the world that's against us. It's all the wicked people that the devil has enslaved and brought into his kingdom become the enemies 
of God's people as well. We're reminded in this passage that he's called the devil and Satan who is the deceiver of the whole world. Um, Those who have not been enlightened and enlivened by the Lord Jesus Christ are still enslaved and in the thrall of the devil, and they are subject to do his will. And all the evil that's going on in the world is really the result of the work that he has done among the people of the world. And so not only is he the adversary of all who love God, the world is the adversary of all who love God. And that would be bad enough, right? If I just said, you've got terrible enemies, which are the world and the flesh. If they were all out there, or the world and the, world and the devil, if they were all out there, that would be bad enough. But we're also told that our enemy is our own flesh. Uh, we carry around an enemy as well. It would be bad enough if all those enemies were outside, but there's an enemy inside. Uh, there's an enemy we always carry around. And if all the enemies were outside, you could simply just kind of, you know, try to lock the door and board up the windows until Jesus comes and just try to hold everyone else out. And there are some, you know, Christians that I think would like to do that and behave as if that's the solution to all of our problems. But of course, that would neglect is you'd be still locking yourself in the building with an enemy. Um, Our own flesh is an enemy. Uh, We are our own worst enemies. And we are always carrying around that traitor in our midst. Because as we think about where does temptation come from, James says, it doesn't come from outside of you, it comes from inside of you. James 1, 14 and 15, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We carry around our sinful natures with their desires. So we carry around all kinds of enemies in ourselves, outside of us, and if all, if that, all of that is not enough bad news, the, the, the bad news is not only are they powerful, not only are they all out there, but they never stop attacking us. Right? The catechism is exactly right about that. These enemies never stop attacking us. Um, and so if we are under constant assault from these strong enemies, then what do we need as a people of God? We need a constant defense, right? If you're under constant attack, you need to be constantly defending. Um, And so can we hope to do something like that in our own strength against these strong enemies that never stop attacking us? Are we sufficient in ourselves to, to resist them? Well, no, we have lacking power in ourselves. Um... This is the shortest point of my sermon because there's not much to say except we're too weak to do it. I'm still going to say more. But that's the essential point. We're too weak to do it. We don't have the ability to to mount the kind of defense that we would need to mount against these kind of enemies. They never stop attacking us and we always have to be on our guard. And if they're always attacking and we let down our guard for a minute, we could be in trouble. Which means we would need the will to continue to defend ourselves and we just don't have the will to do it. Um, you know, a picture of that weakness that we have is given to us when Jesus asked his disciples to watch and pray with him at the Garden of Gethsemane. And he keeps coming back and finding them asleep. Right? They, they don't even have the will to keep watching and praying with him for an evening. Um, and that tells us something about what kind of people we are. 
Um, Psalm 103 puts it in stark relief when it talks about the everlasting qualities of God and then says, well, what about us? And it says, we're dust. And thankfully, God remembers that we are dust. Our days are like grass. We flourish like the flower of the field. The wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Uh, We're not strong enough to mount the kind of defense that's needed. And Jesus wants us to understand that without him, we can do nothing. Uh, We're not up to the task. We don't have the strength to reckon with these enemies. We don't have the will to do what's necessary to resist these enemies. We don't have the vigilance. We don't have the strength. We can't do what we need to do to be defended. And what does that tell us? If we are lacking in the strength ourselves to be defended and they never stop attacking us, where must we look for power? Where must we look for help? We must look to the power of our God. And here's where the good news comes. I hope you realize there would be good news coming. It's been a lot of bad news to this point. Um, But the good news that comes is there is sufficient power in God to defeat the enemies that are too strong for us. Because we lack power in ourselves, but God is almighty in power. And that's where the encouragement for the Christian life has to come from, that God is powerful enough. Not only is he powerful, he's able to fight against our enemies, he's willing to fight against our enemies. He sees the powerless in their powerlessness, and that rouses him to action. That's the the joy we can have as people of God, that when he sees the powerless under assault, when he sees them under attack, it's he who rises up in their defense. It's beautifully pictured for us in Isaiah 59, verses 15 through 20. When Isaiah talks about the total lack of justice that the Lord sees, and he says the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put garments of vengeance on for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as we thought about a little bit this morning, who is that redeemer who comes? It's the Lord Jesus Christ who comes in the flesh to be the deliverer of his people. And so he entered into this kind of world under constant assault from the world and the devil. Um, His flesh was never his enemy because he never yielded to temptation. And so he didn't carry around an enemy with him. In fact, because he was holy and because he resisted in his life, all of the temptations that he was faced with, his flesh was actually his ally in the fight. And so he doesn't have to battle with his own flesh. He has no evil desires. He had no sin. He still had the world and the devil as his enemies. But they were never able to overcome him either. 
Um, And it would be easy to say that's just because who he was, he was God, so what chance did they have? But also as a true human being, he overcame. And he was always under assault. Maybe even more so than we are under assault by the world and by the devil. Um, But they never found him unprepared. Right When Jesus finds his disciples sleeping on the job, literally, he says, you know, watch and pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And it was a testimony to their inability to do what they needed to do. The life of our Lord is a testimony of his ability to do what he needed to do. They never stopped attacking him, and they never found him to be unequal to their attacks. He was always vigilant against the attacks that were leveled against him. He was always strong. He was never found unprepared or unarmed. And if we were paying attention to the Old Testament, it shouldn't surprise us that this is who he is. Because this is who the Old Testament constantly pictures him to be. Who is the angel of the Lord who was with his people to defend them? In every generation of God's people, that was our Lord Jesus Christ. Prior to his incarnation, he's often called in the Old Testament the angel of the Lord. When they see that appearance, it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. He's with his people to defend them. And he's often pictured to his people in the Old Testament as not just an angel of the Lord who is for his people, but he's an angel of the Lord who has a drawn sword in his hand. Um, We thought about Numbers 24 a few weeks ago in the story of Balaam. Balaam saw, well, first his donkey saw, and then he saw the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord was described in a particular way. We're told in Numbers 22, 22 to 23, the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he, Balaam, was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. Um, The donkey saw what Balaam couldn't see, was that the angel of the Lord had took his stand as the adversary of this man who was going to attack his people. Here was the world coming for the people of God. And what did they find? The angel of the Lord taking his stand as an adversary against them with a drawn sword in his hand. Uh, Joshua saw something similar I'm not going to go through every example, but just another will suffice, I think. But Joshua saw a man when he was scouting Jericho in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Um, This is another reminder. It's a wonderful statement because, are you on our side or or on our enemy's side? And he said, you're thinking of it all wrong. You're on my side. I'm the commander of the Lord's army, and I have now come. He too had a drawn sword in his hand to be an adversary to the adversary of his people. It's a reminder to us of the strength of our Lord. And particularly the strength of our Lord in defense of his people. But this is who our Lord was for us in the world. 
um, a warrior who could not be defeated, who extinguished every dart that the devil in the world fired against him until he overcame the devil, trod him underfoot, and destroyed him. Uh, That's the God we serve. That's the God who is for us. And so when we're reminded that our enemies are strong and that we are weak and that we cannot stand against them for a moment, we need to be reminded that our God is that much stronger than our enemies and that he is stronger than them and that they cannot stand against him for a moment. That's the God we serve and that's the God who is our help, who's described as the God Isaiah saw whose righteous warfare overwhelms our enemies like a rushing flood and like a driving whirlwind. And if we're to stand at all, we have to be able to stand in his might. We need his power for us. Um, And that's why in that famous passage about spiritual warfare, where does Paul tell us to look for strength in Ephesians 6? He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." One of the most critical pieces of our defense is to pray for help. One of the most critical parts of the Christian life is praying for help. Um, I think sometimes we think of all kinds of other things that we need to try to be doing to resist the devil and to try to walk the Christian life. And we we pile up a list of things that we should be doing. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to you know, try to read good Christian books and think about things, you know, do Bible studies, watch videos. All of those are good things. I'm not saying you should put any of that away. Um, But prayer is the essential thing. Um, Prayer is the essential thing always for the Christian life. Um, Because we need the power of the Lord to be at work for us. So we need to constantly be praying for his help. And that's what we're doing in this prayer when we pray Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're acknowledging that our enemies are too strong for us, and if we're to stand even for a moment, we can only do that in the power of the Lord. And we are praying as the Catechism beautifully puts it, Lord, uphold us and make us strong by the power of your Holy Spirit so that we may not be defeated in this spiritual fight, but may firmly resist our enemies until we finally win the complete victory. That's what we're praying for when we pray, first, lead us not into temptation. Temptation is anything said or done that occasions what, or any occasions whatsoever by which we are moved and enticed to do what is evil. And there are lots of ways that we are tempted in this world because we are weak. And so we are acknowledging our weakness when we say, Lord, don't even let us be tempted. We know what kind of people we are. Don't even lead us into temptation. Um, We know our weakness. Uh, God never does the tempting. He never moves or entices anyone to do what is evil. But we know that God is sovereign. He controls all things. And temptations can only come to us if he allows it. Evil can only come to us if he allows it. And so we're asking him to keep us from the temptations into which we would all too easily fall. 
And then the second request, the second part of that request is deliver us from evil. We know that not all tempta- that temptations will still come. Even to the righteous, temptations come. We know that because temptations came to Jesus. If they came to him, they will come to us. Um, but we're praying to God as if the temptations come, deliver us from them. Do not let us fall under those temptations and be led away into sin. Give us the strength to war against them and to overcome Show us the way of escape that you always provide is really what we're praying. Um, Because that's the hope that the scriptures hold out to us as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. This is one of the ways the devil lies to us and that sin deceives us is to say, you know, you're facing something that no one else has ever faced. Uh, You've been singled out for this trouble. Um, this is something that no one else knows. And what does Paul say? No, that's not true. There's no temptation that overtakes us that's not common to man, that other people haven't had to war against or fight against. And Paul goes on to say, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's a wonderful hope in Christian warfare that our God is faithful and will not let us be tempted ever such that the temptation is just too much for us to resist. That we're just powerless against it. God says that's simply not true. Uh, There's never a temptation that you're absolutely powerless against. And if God allows temptation to come, he always provides a way out. A way of escape so that we will be able to endure it. That should be encouraging for the Christian life. Uh, There's always a way of escape in the midst of these kinds of attacks. Uh, Sometimes the way out of temptation is to fight with it. Our Lord showed us that way by going to war with the temptations. When the devil came to him, he fought against it with the word of God. You say that, but it's written something else. He fought against it with a word. Now, he was strong. There's sometimes with temptation, we shouldn't fight them. We should just run away from them. Um, We should just know that sometimes discretion is the better part of valor and run from them. Uh, Joseph did that when he was being tempted into sin by Potiphar's wife. Um, Even though he was resisting the temptation, he decided it was better just to run. Sometimes we need to fight. Sometimes we need to flee. But there's always a way out. We don't always take it because we stumble and fall in many ways. But there's always a way out. And we're praying that God would help us to escape as we ought. Um, And that's the nature of the Christian life. uh, To be constantly in this warfare. Um, Now maybe that's not exciting news to be sharing with you or seems like kind of a downer. Um, I remember reading a book on spiritual warfare where the guy said, you know, in heaven you wear robes, here you wear armor because you're always fighting and you have to sleep in the armor because that's how much we're under attack. We might say that's a pretty grim view of the Christian life, just sort of always lived under this sort of constant attack and defend, um, is that the way we always are going to have to live? And I like how the catechism ends by reminding us we are praying for this until we reach the convict, until we win the complete victory. 
um, that the church militant always becomes in God's time the church triumphant. So there is a call always in the Christian life to sober vigilance, that watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. That we need to, as Peter says, be sober-minded and be watchful because our adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The spiritual warfare we're engaged in is serious business. As the Puritan Thomas Manton said, you know, sometimes the problem we have in the Christian life is we, we want here on earth what we can only expect in heaven. It's one of the big mistakes we make to expect here on earth what we can only expect in heaven. We will not have rest from our enemies until we're in heaven. We shouldn't expect rest from our enemies on earth. We are going to be engaged with enemies all of our lives. Um, We have to live with sober vigilance, but it shouldn't keep us from living in sure confidence. The victory is sure. Right? That's what Revelation really helps us to see. The victory is sure because all the power is on our side. Right? The devil, for all his pretenses of power, wasn't stronger than Michael. Right? The devil couldn't even win a war that was just matched angel to angel. Right? He, he and his angels were not strong enough to defeat Michael and his angels. He's not even strong enough to win a war with angels. He certainly can't win a war with God. And even though he's going after God's people with great wrath, what does this passage teach us? He says, I'm going to go slithering after the church in the wilderness, and I'm going to get it. And what does God do? Gives the church wings to fly away. And when it lands in the wilderness, the devil says, I'm going to to vomit forth a river to drown them. And the river rushes forth, and God causes the earth to open and swallow the river. Um, The devil can't overcome, and his time is short. The time of victory is coming. So the watchwords of the Christian life are watch and pray and wait and hope. Live life with sober vigilance on account of our enemies, but live life in sure confidence that we will overcome in the Lord. Christ's victory assures us of our own victory. And because he was tempted in this world and suffered while he was tempted Hebrews 2.18 tells us he knows how to help. He knows how to help in the midst of temptation. He also knows how to overcome. And it reminds us that we have overcome in him. John also says in 1 John 4.4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We carry around an enemy in our desires, in our old selves, we also carry around a powerful friend, a powerful helper, who is the Holy Spirit. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Uh, In this battle, we should have sure confidence that we wait and we hope because we one day will triumph. And the Lord will triumph for us and with us and through us. Romans 16.20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Christian, continue to pray this prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.
Watch and pray, for we have strong enemies. But wait and hope, because our Lord is coming, the one who has always been the defender of his people and who soon is coming to give us the full victory. Uh, May he come quickly, and may we be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that we do need to live this life in that sober vigilance that we are aware of just how much the Christian life is a fight against our adversaries. So we pray that we would be a vigilant people, that we would constantly be before you in prayer, seeking that help uh, that only you can give. But we also pray that you would help us to wage this war in that confidence that our Lord Jesus is our defender now as he has always been and is coming again soon in glory to deliver us and to destroy our enemies completely. We thank you that he has overcome, and we pray that we might always look in faith and hope to him. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.